Hello and welcome back to Here Are the Nominees, podcast presented by the media by us, where we talk about Oscar-nominated films from uh, the past. At, at one point I was thinking of uh, saying the past and present, but that's not really possible unless we are in the <laughs> nomination phase. Uh, yeah, and who knows if it's really going to be in the present with the way things are going. Right. Although oh. it is it is fun that we will have uh, at some point this. Do you know when nominations are going to happen in 2021? Uh, I think it's supposed to be February, I believe. Oh. Well, I forgot to say who we were. I'm Brent and you're David. So Hey. <laughs> I, yeah. I, uh, I, I jumped right ahead there. But um, yeah, so I guess in February we'll have a bunch of new movies to add to the to the pool for uh for the podcast which will be fun oh there's even a chance one could pop up before the ceremony because aren't the the ceremony going to be much later this year are they still doing that yeah it's going to be in april so it's, it's planned for april right now okay well as we announced on the last episode this time we're talking about pan's labyrinth pan is uh only in america that's the uh, it's the only market where they they called it pan's labyrinth because there's no character named pan and uh, it's apparently uh rather confusing for uh, a lot of people but um but yeah pan's labyrinth 2006 movie from guillermo del toro the typical question we'll ask at the start is uh what was your prior experience with pan's labyrinth david um so it's probably my fourth or fifth time watching this I saw it uh, in the theaters. This is back in 2006, where I was 21 or so. And I was trying to see a bunch of Oscar-nominated movies in theaters as much as I could. Like, 2006 and 2007 are probably my heyday of doing that, when I just had uh, disposable college income before I had responsibilities. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I saw it in the theater. I have a DVD of it, and I've seen it streaming probably my third time now um we actually uh we talked about it on a uh uh talkie talk from our our mothership uh the media by us arm before did you go back and listen to that episode i started to but then uh i wanted to come at it fresh me too and say the same thing again (laughs) (laughs) me too apparently um yeah, so I've seen this movie, um, this is the third time I've seen it. I, I think the first time was maybe about 10 years ago, and I think I watched it again about two years ago, and uh, and so so yeah, this is the third watch for me, and each time I kind of have similar reactions. I think I like it more each time I watch it, but I've always found the movie to be kind of like... I don't know. My reaction to this movie is rather unique because it's, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to maybe explore it or have you maybe help me through my feelings and thoughts on this movie. But uh, I've always come at it after watching it. I don't have critiques of the movie really in any way. Like I, every aspect of the movie I'm, I'm very impressed by and I like, and I enjoy thoroughly. And yet I still, I come away kind of feeling like I didn't quite know how to put it all together in like the, maybe the whole is less than the parts in a way, but not in a significant way. I mean, I think we're, I think we're going to be talking about a, uh, a movie that is at the very least a display of expert filmmaking and um, it's very impressive, but that's kind of the, always the feeling I've kind of come away with it or come away from it with. And, uh, 
Um, so anyway, this is a movie that I greatly respect and I very much like, but it still nags at me a little bit because I feel like this is a movie I should love, and it's just it's just not there for me yet. So yeah, it's kind of in a tricky space. It's not quite like a mind bender puzzle box movie, and it's also not quite a straightforward diehard type movie. Right, and it, it kind of each time I watch it, like the first time. Y- y- you, you know, it's, it's it's very lush. It's very well done. It's gorgeous, and it strikes me as like, oh, it's a simple fairy tale, because you know it's all about fairy tales. And the second time, you you know, I watched it as like, oh, it's all the, those are all allegories for things in history. And then the next time I watched it, I was like, no, nope, I was wrong. It was fairy tales the whole time. <laughs> and then I kind of <laughs> like ping pong a little bit. It's like, th- does this have the answer to the life, the universe, and everything? Like. Mm-hmm. Or, or is it just a, a fairy tale because uh, Guillermo del Toro likes monster monster movies? Um, the truth is somewhere in between there, but I go back and forth with it. Uh, all right. So, uh, what do you like? Um, have Have you already said that you're you're a big fan of this movie? I know from reading Letterbox that you are. Yeah, I have it as five stars, and I have it as my second favorite movie of 2006, behind only Children of Men. Um, Great movie. Yeah, big, big fan of it, Um, especially it's, you know, near impossible to do it now. But the experience seeing it in a theater was pretty, um, it's pretty wondrous. Um, Guillermo del Toro, I think, does a great job of uh, funneling the horrors of the world through a child's perspective. So you Mm -hmm. get the, uh, you know, Spielbergian awe of these fantastical things that are happening. And also, um, man, does it make the just horrific acts of violence just so visceral and just churns your stomach. So it's a very, um, yeah, I think it's very effective as like a very emotional and very, uh, very visceral movie in that respect. And I think it's very, uh, very creative. When I finished watching it, I was wondering if it was based on anything or even like an existing fairy tale. And no, that's just Guillermo del Toro's mind where it came from the twisted mind of GDT. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, was, was there anything before we jump into the plot and maybe the plot's a better place to mention this? Was there anything that didn't work as well for you this time watching it? Um, no, not, not nothing that appreciable. Um, it's still it's still very well done. The only thing that kind of uh, pales a little bit in comparison is the, uh, the special effects. You know, it's, it's a uh, Mexican Spanish production, so it's it's not exactly LucasArts or uh, you know Weta Studios. Um, you don't notice it too much because so much is practical, which kind of makes it timeless um, with a lot of the effects. But uh, some of the uh, CGI they do, like the uh, the fairy stick insect. Mm-hmm. Um, initially flying through the force is okay, but I really noticed when the insect was on Ophelia's bed and trying to like starts interacting with her on the same plane or some of the fairies, it really seems like it's they, like they are in different worlds. Like uh, uh, as better special effects would kind of integrate that. So they feel more physical in that mm-hmm. world and is kind of a 
just it kind of looked copy and pasted onto onto the film rather than having its own shadow like all the stuff that you know i'm probably glossing over i have no idea how any of that works but it just gave me that feeling what do you what do you typically do with like two movies from the late 90s and early 2000s that have what were very good special effects for the time but also came out in a in a an age which was left in the dust as far as effects go and i I actually don't think pan's labyrinth really fits into that i think its effects are really good um for for what it is but even if you can see the seams here and there but like uh i mean it's it's tough because you know the cutting edge of one year 15 years later can look awful uh in a lot of movies and so do you judge it sort of on like what they had to work with or do you judge it on the 2021 experience yeah they were too busy figuring out if they could do it they didn't think about if they should do it um yeah i i, I give it a grain of salt i'm not a big uh i don't really care that much if uh things look too too low res but i do need it to kind of be coherent yeah um it's hard to define it's just like does it make sense for my eyes um the things in 2021, I expect to kind of be photoreal almost or, you know, no no clipping or anything like that. And the stuff back in here, I do a grain of salt. Um, even mentioning it now, it's it's really nitpicking. It's a movie I really love, so it's hard to really uh, mm-hmm. nitpick too much about anything that hasn't, uh, hasn't fared. Um, how about you? Is there anything that uh, worked uh, better or not as good this time? I think I just, like I said earlier, I enjoy the movie more each time I watch it, and I just I think it worked better for me than it has in the past. Even if, even if it maybe it's just due to familiarity, but you know, getting back in it and remembering like just how awful uh, the captain is, and just how much how strong of a villain he is, uh, that worked really well for me. And um, sort of the wonder of going into the labyrinth and meeting. Uh, the fawn is uh, is something that that continues to be like a kind of a magic moment, and then the 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 tasks also are are visceral and memorable, and uh, yeah, the 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 pale man was as heart stopping as ever, so continues yeah. to just improve for me. It's really the the one scene of the movie. It's the most iconic scene for me, even yeah. though it's it's Pan's labyrinth. That's pale man's room. <laughs> that I that I keep thinking about if I think of that movie. Okay, so let's jump into the plot, and uh, we will, as uh, what I imagine will be usual, we will uh, read through the Wikipedia plot, and uh, whenever the Wikipedia plot takes a break, we will take a break to discuss uh, the movie. In a fairy tale, Princess Moana, whose father is the king of the underworld, visits the human world, where the sunlight blinds her and erases her memory. She becomes mortal and eventually dies. The king believes that eventually her spirit will return to the underworld, so he builds labyrinths, which act as portals around the world in preparation for her return. So not a lot to discuss. This is done really quickly in the movie, but how do you you feel about presenting it this way where the fairy tale is told to us rather than the movie starting with Ophelia meeting, and then she meets the fawn, and maybe the fawn tells this tells this uh, fairy tale to her. Like, I, I, you know, there are different ways you can present this information to us and the characters, 
And I feel like uh, by starting it off, it's telling us that, um, I don't know, for me, a lot of people talk about whether, uh, whether Ophelia is imagining everything that's happening or if it's real. And for me, I think this, this framing at the beginning kind of points me in the direction of we should believe this because we're being told, those of us who are interpreting the movie are being told to pay attention to this fairy tale about uh, the king of the underworld and whatnot, and this princess. And to me, that's kind of giving a little more credence to um, what she goes through with the fawn rather than... I wind up not spending as much time thinking about, oh, is Ophelia just imagining all of this? But what, what do you think about the start? I think that's, that's really interesting because the framing of this story I kind of take as... Um, I'm on the opposite side. I, I think nice. that uh, the fairy tales are kind of in her head. And I think framing it this way is one of the things that um, kind of guides me to think that. Because she's, uh, you know, we have this fairy tale and this setup and it's the same kind of structure. And, you know, the narration is similar to a story that Ophelia is going to tell her baby brother to a stomach later. And... We're telling this story, and then the next scene we cut to is it's uh, Ophelia kind of daydreaming in a car driving over there. So it's kind of like um, in media res of that journey, but it's just this is what she was daydreaming of. It's kind of what how I frame it. And like I said, I also flip-flop <laughs> which side of it I am on depending on my watch. But I kind of took it that way this time is... You know, what connects that to this story rather than uh, the other way around? Um. I, uh, I think that that speaks to GDT's craft and his mm-hmm. ability as a filmmaker that he can, uh, you know, evoke opposite interpretations and reactions from the same scene, basically. Uh, and I think that's a. I think when that's what you're wanting to do, and I think in this case he is wanting to do that, he is wanting to leave some ambiguity to the movie and uh, and to the story, that I think that's a really impressive uh, feat when when directors can do that. Yeah, because I think if it's the other way around and she's daydreaming in the car and just drifts off and and, uh, has this fairy tale, I think it it tips a hand too much or it is just a willful disc, disc... um, I don't know, disconnect for what he's trying to do later on. So it's, uh, I think uh, it, it doesn't make sense initially, but it kind of makes sense um, after you've kind of seen it all. I don't know. Continuing in 1944, Francoist Spain, uh, 10-year-old Ophelia travels with her pregnant but sickly mother, Carmen, to meet Captain Vidal, her new stepfather. Vidal, the son of a famed commander who died in Morocco, believes strongly in phalangism and has been assigned to hunt down Republican rebels. A large stick insect, which Ophelia believes to be a fairy, leads Ophelia into an ancient stone labyrinth, but she is stopped by Vidal's housekeeper, Mercedes, who is secretly supporting her brother Pedro and other rebels. That night, the insect appears in Ophelia's bedroom, where it transforms into a fairy and leads her through the labyrinth. There she meets a fawn who believes she is the reincarnation of Princess Moana. He gives her a book and tells her she will find it, find in it three tasks to complete 
in order for her to acquire immortality and return to her kingdom. So here we have sort of the layout of how the movie, what the movie's going to be about. So um, I, I think this is where I'll ask you, uh, we'll save it for thematic talk actually, but um, so we meet Vidal, he's instantly, dis, uh, you know, unlikable, and uh, Mercedes is instantly likable, and the mom is just kind of, you can already tell she's kind of kind of be nothing in the in the in the plot as far as an active force in any way at least um mm-hmm. and so uh so what do you think about you know instantly going down into the labyrinth and and, and that well the 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 introduction of Vidal as the stepfather i think yeah, this on this watch it was uh that was one of the most impressive things for me is him as a character and how they introduce him and how quickly they get you to dislike your main character through, (laughs) you know, he's standing at attention when the car's driving up and he's got a stopwatch. He says like they're late and you know why they're late and you already, (laughs) you already hate this guy. Um, let alone when, uh, when Carmen, uh, Ophelia's mother, asks her to address him as father, not stepfather or anything, mm-hmm. um, Ophelia just walks up to him and doesn't uh, doesn't say anything, but extends a hand, and she t- he already is in in meeting her, introducing her to like an act of violence, like rips her hand and tells her it's the wrong one and doesn't say anything else. It's like just instantly within like. 30 seconds, you know, this guy is our villain and he's so villainous. Which, uh, the hand thing is, uh, apparently a reference, a direct reference to David Copperfield. Ah, I was going to say A scene of David Copperfield. (laughs) I've never read that, so I would not have known that. Um, yeah, so I really like this part of the movie specifically because, I love the kind of concept behind this movie. I love how it kind of lays out how this movie is going to go, specifically with the book of tasks for you know the the, the fawn gives her. And uh, I like movies that have kind of a I don't know in a way it's a treasure hunt structure, mm-hmm. uh, which is here's here you're going to have to do A, B, and C to to get the treasure at the end. And the treasure is a life as a princess in the underworld, and. Um, I really like that. It gets me excited for the movie because uh, even, you know, as long as there's some distance between me and the movie, I can kind of, I kind of, for, uh, I never forget the pale man, but I kind of always forget what the other tasks are. And then he, yeah. you know, he mentions the thing about the, the toad and uh, it gets me very excited to see this like adventure. She's going to, she's going to go on. Yeah, it's just classic story writing structure too, you know. With the three tasks, like the first one straightforward, the second one is where where our hero kind of stumbles, and the third one is you know not what you think it is, like more than meets the eye. It's uh and yeah, I'm a big fan of structure in in movies and in stories and stuff. And you know, as a big RPG player, I, I recognize you know this is this is my world. <laughs> like you do your task to get that thing, and you get enough things. Then you'll go do the thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very satisfying to have those tasks, and uh, you know each one is visually different, and each one requires different skills or reveals different parts of uh, Ophelia's personality. Um, and yeah, it's a good way to lay out what the movie is going to be. Um, 
First with her rolling up to the mill and meeting Vidal and knowing Mercedes and no, you kind of get a flicker of, you know, there's double agent stuff. The movie's telling you what that movie's going to be. And then you have right after her in the labyrinth, her talking to the fawn, you get what that movie's going to be because it's kind of two mm-hmm. interlocking, you know, double helix movies going on at the same time. And they're both laying out um, what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Ophelia completes the first task, which is retrieving a key from the belly of a giant toad, but becomes worried about her mother, whose condition is worsening. The fawn gives Ophelia a mandrake root, instructing her to keep it under Carmen's bed in a bowl of milk and regularly supply it with blood, which seems to ease Carmen's illness. Accompanied by three fairy gods and equipped with a a piece of magic chalk, Ophelia then completes the second task, retrieving a dagger from the lair of the Pale Man, a child-eating monster. Although warned not to consume anything there, she eats two grapes, awakening the Pale Man. He devours two of the fairies and chases Ophelia, but she manages to escape. Infuriated at her disobedience, the fawn refuses to give Ophelia the third task. So here... Uh, the description kind of breaks the movie up because you do have two uh, two interlocking stories. So this focuses on the fantasy aspect of the movie, mm-hmm. and um, so first off, the the giant toad. So she has this uh, this beautiful dress on, and it's these nice new shoes, and uh, there's, she's supposed to wear it to impress the the captain later. It's like Chekhov's uh, and, dress, right? <laughs> this is such a yeah. nice dress. He's gonna love it. <laughs> at least she has. She's mindful to at least uh, hang the dress up, even though that goes awry. But at least she she attempts to preserve that. But yeah, she she's unwilling to go into the tree stump without her shoes on, I suppose. And uh, so she leaves those on and trudges through the mud. Um, what do you think about the the giant toad? Because <laughs> I I love it. It's it's yeah. so weird, and I love it. And I was just thinking about the dress. Maybe it's just my uh, my my triggers as a father, but just seeing maybe seeing it now as a father, I was like her her tromping through the mud right before a big dinner or like a thing. It's like yeah, I get that. <laughs> it made me feel a lot more for Carmen uh, having a little uh, little girl who tromps through the mud. But yeah, I I, uh, I I like I like the first task, and I actually learned that. Uh, that is actually how toads uh, vomit. They don't have a vomit. They can't just like regurgitate. If they need to get something out, they spit up their entire stomach and they take something out. Like that's actually based in wow. some kind of scientific fact. I mean, the him like uh, turning into just goo and an empty skin sack, that's not real. But Okay. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to ask how they survive. <laughs> That's, that doesn't seem like a good uh, biological reflex. Yeah. It's just, well, I'll die. There's a lot of stomach goose acts in the swamp that people just never see. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I like um, that there's obvious, uh, um, or there's some interesting um, visual symbolism there about her getting into it, um, just physically going down deep, like into the earth to kind of do this task. And she's kind of starting into the journey. She's, you know, fully committing. She's, uh, you know, getting getting muddy and kind of uh, getting her, I don't know, getting her, getting her toes wet trying to get after these tasks. I think the, the next part about the mandrake route is also very interesting because it's the first kind of breaking of the wall between the two stories in that the fawn 
you know, comes into her bedroom and gives her, you know, something to help her mother, which uh, is unrelated generally to her tasks uh, for the book. So he's, he's Mm -hmm. helping her out in that regard. And I think it's interesting because that's something that happens more and more as the movie goes along. Uh, These two separate worlds start to become more intertwined, not to a great extent, I don't think ever, but it's, there are bits and pieces there. And, and that's, that's a that's a cool moment, but um, then we get to the pale man, and uh, so she has to t- I, it, make sure I'm remembering this. She's taking the key from the toad into the pale man's lair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was one. First off, she she sees the the table with all the food and everything, and the pale man just just you know snoozing over there at the end of the table, and uh, she gets over to the boxes and. I don't think I quite understood why she uh, kind of shook her head at what the fairies suggested as to which box to unlock. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And she kind of just goes with her gut. Yeah. Kinda, I don't know if that's... Uh, and I, I I, didn't pay enough attention to know what symbols were on which thing. I just kind of took it as like a Indiana Jones and Last Crusade thing of, you know, this is the obvious choice. It's the nice chalice and you go with the, you know, the wooden thing. Um, it's just, it just, it, to me, it just means that she's going with her gut, that uh, the thing that she's learned that you can't always trust fawns or the people in her mythologies and fairy tales and stories. You can trust yourself is kind of uh, what she's doing there. Um I don't know if there's more symbolism to that, but I, that's kind of just what I took out of it. Well, I, do, I did wonder if it was the first in, uh, indication that she was going to break from the instructions given to her necessarily, because mm-hmm. he's, you know, he, she was instructed to follow the fairies. They would show her what to do. They pointed to the middle. She chose the one on the left. And it's sort of, I think everything with the pale man's lair is her kind of thinking, I got this figured out. I'm good at this. After after the the you know huge success with the the toad uh, incident, then I I don't know. I wondered if she's just sort of uh, getting a little um, she got confident fair, fair, fairy tale swagger going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so she's like, I'll I'll open up whatever uh, box I want, and I'll have a couple of grapes, um, which awakens the pale man and. There can't be a more iconic moment in this movie than the awakening of the pale man. Yeah. And uh, a more where I'm uh, mad at the main character. <laughs> like as a kid, yes. I was such a rule follower that I'd be like, <laughs> of course, I'm not going to touch anything. I mean, I don't know if there's like the real world of this story is I don't know how much she's actually getting to eat. You know, we don't really see her eat that much in the actual uh, in the actual uh I say real life. A lot of the dinners she either can't attend or she's not invited mm-hmm. to. So maybe she's she, she just hungry. But um, you, you know, had they? I think okay, this is going to be a very a very mild criticism. But I, had they gone to the trouble of maybe showing us some some hunger on her part? I think I might have been less infuriated with that decision. I'm the same way you are. It's like this is the rules are very simple. Just go in, get the key, and leave. You see this weird thing sitting over there. It's not moving. So far, you're following the rules. It should be fairly easy to... It should be obvious to just keep following rules. Yeah, and if you're uh, not an audio learner, there's a visual cue up on the, like the, the paintings of, like, he is going to eat children. He doesn't like food. Yes. He's going to eat children and small things. 
there's like a isn't there like a pile of children's shoes in his uh down in his lair yeah so you're right there's multiple visual aids about what to do there um <laughs> it could be that uh you know i, I like to think that uh, there's probably a lot of intentionality to what was what was here is up until this point uh ophelia is a pretty faultless character and mm-hmm. she always does the right thing and she's always kind of getting uh getting crucified for it so she's very um almost christ-like and this is kind of making her human like she's she's a kid she's gonna not listen sometimes and she's gonna not do the right thing and i think uh, cinematically it shows us the consequences because for the first task she follows it and you know nothing really happens other than she gets muddy muddy um the second one she doesn't follow it it escalates the stakes by showing us that like there's real danger in this world as well so um, it may not be perfectly there to to the viewer about like why she does that stuff. I think it's just like she's a kid and, mm-hmm. you know, she's in danger wherever she is, is, is my my theory for it. Yeah, well, that works. Uh, just the the maybe she's hungry thing doesn't work as well for me because they do have a pretty well stocked storeroom um, and everyone else in the the mill uh, seemed to be eating just fine. So I would think she eats fine, but if I, I kind of agree, I think it works better if you just think of it as uh, a kid getting confident and a kid being just kind of having impulses and you can tell kids not to do certain things and they're still going to just have that impulse that they, they can't quite uh, overcome. Yeah. That being said, I'm glad she did it because that scene with the <sighs> pale man is just, it's so good how slow it unfolds. Mm-hmm. And uh, her escaping it and the chair and the chair teetering and you see him come around the corner and it's just mm. such a, it's, it, he's pretty horrifying looking and he, he moves pretty horrifyingly. It's such a short scene and it just weighs, like it just, it feels so huge in my mind uh, because of the impact it has in a very short amount of time. Yeah, like if you haven't seen this movie but you're in, uh, you know, on film internet, you'd probably think that this is the big bad guy of this movie because almost any scene that you're going to see is either the, you probably think it's fawn versus fauna versus uh, (laughs) pale man in this movie. Yeah. Um, interesting about the design of pale man. Uh, I read that uh, Guillermo del Toro had lost a good bit of weight, uh, around the time he was designing this movie. And, uh, he, the, the skin flabs, that he still had left over from losing weight uh, gave him the idea for just sort of the, the sagging skin on the pale man. <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. Cause that's, that's pretty, everything about him is pretty unnerving and that's just an extra detail to be unnerving. There's something just a yeah. little, a little familiar and realistic about it that just makes it even more unsettling. Do you think the pale man, you know, it's dangerous to leave your eyes out on the table um, when you've got all those, you've got grapes on the table for the first thing. I mean, and, and then you have all this food and I don't know. I sometimes think, does the pale man lose his eyes in the couch cushions and whatnot? <laughs> and I don't know. It's, it must be frustrating. So I can understand why he's very angry when, uh, when he is animated. Um, yeah. And if, if Ophelia accidentally ate his grapes, would that count as eating the, you know, eating, Sorry, if he mistook his eyes for grapes, does that count? And would he wake up? And he's like, oh, you thought those were 
grapes. You thought those were my eyes? <laughs> yeah, what? Man, if, that's like uh, that's her her like breaking the the simulation thing there. That so she walks in and she eats his eyes. At that point, the fawn is probably just like, uh, man, this kid's weird. <laughs> Uh, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and send you to the underworld because where else could you have come from, you you weird beastly thing? She just cap- walked in Captain with all, him. <laughs> all this delicious food on this table, and you go straight for monster eyeballs, <laughs> a little weirdo. That's um, a that's a flex. <laughs> uh, okay, so during the time that all this is happening. Uh, Ophelia quickly becomes aware of Vidal's ruthlessness in the course of hunting down the rebels after he erroneously murders two uh, local farmers detained on suspension. Gosh, I can't talk. Suspicion of aiding the rebels. Vidal interrogates and tortures a captive rebel. He asks Dr. Ferrero to tend to the captive, whom Ferrero then euthanizes at the rebels' own urging. Realizing that Ferrero is a rebel collaborator, Vidal kills him. Vidal later catches Ophelia tending to the mandrake root, which he considers delusional. Carmen agrees and throws the root into the fire. She immediately develops painful contractions and dies, giving birth to Vidal's son. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, this is the, this is the section. The, 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 the bit with the farmers was, was particularly heartbreaking and, and, and just, you know, evil, um, this is this is really just further establishing what we already suspected about, about Vidal, which is this is an evil son of a bitch. Yeah, I think the particular way he kills the farmer's son with the bottle is like it just it it uh, it stays that extra half second or pans that extra like where other scenes would cut away that just yeah. makes it just so disturbing that level of violence that he's doing. Um, the same with the, uh, you know, torturing the rebel he uh, he captures that uh, Dr. Ferrero euthanizes. The thing he does to his hand is just like, oh, it just gives me the icks just thinking about how separated and uh, I can't really talk about it, how, how mangled it is. You don't really see um, stuff like that in fairy tales. I guess that, that's part of the point of it is we're, we're going to show you the extremes of these worlds. It's also it, it the movie even doesn't even show Dr. Ferrero as being like a rebel sympathizer necessarily. He's just a doctor. He's just a doctor treating people and as he is you know, sworn to do. And that's enough for Vidal to kill him. Because Vidal doesn't just want you to be loyal to him. He wants you to be uh, you know, to violate your oaths in you know, in order to be loyal to him. Yeah, he does go, Dr. Ferrer goes a little beyond that in uh, supplying the rebels with the uh, antibiotics. But still, that's that's just part of, you know, he's going to see a man whose leg is, you know, um, not doing great, as the man will colorfully uh, say, that the uh, one of the rebels in the cave, um, you know, his, his leg is severely infected. It's, it's another, just do no harm, and if people are, you know, if people are, are hurting, he's going to help, and just that level of humanism is um it's the opposite of the the fascism and uh i guess phalangism of this francoist spain i i don't know why vidal and carmen have such a strong reaction to the mandrake route i mean if you're if the kid just wants to occupy their time by making 
weird goopy soup and putting it under your bed, I guess there's no harm that can come from it. Were they afraid it was going to stink the place up? Yeah, he did say it smells. I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I, I could see how, Vid, why Vidal would do that and why Carmen is just trying to keep the peace um, with, uh, with the family. Um, Captain Vidal, if he's not shown torturing people, is shown being extremely meticulous about his grooming, about his appearance, about everything should be in the proper order. So have this like uh, stinking funk root, <laughs> like under his, <laughs> you know, uh, very ill pregnant wife. Like I could see how, you know, I'm dealing with the rebels and then I got this. Um, I think it's pretty in character for him to uh, react the way he does. Like, I got a lot of things on my mind, and then I have this, you know? Well, then the uh, the wife dies, and he doesn't seem to be all that concerned about that. He had already told the doctor, you know, like, save my child. I don't really care about her that much. He just sees her as a, you know, a baby production factory. And uh, then he has his, uh, his son. So um, Ophelia has to deal with the death of her mother, and they have the, the funeral and whatnot. So, um yeah, is this a good place to? I guess there's there's kind of background that Carmen talks about with Ophelia's father and how him and her and the captain met. Um, mm-hmm. She kind of talks about it at the at the dinner earlier. Yeah. Um, now with Carmen passing away and you know Vidal's indifference to her life, um, there's a lot of implied. Um, kind of implied plot that happened there with uh, uh, Ophelia's father being a tailor that made uniforms for the, for the captain and presumably with Carmen being around. Um, I've always kind of, uh, I kind of always thought that it implied that uh, the captain probably had him killed or killed him and either took Carmen or maybe even, like an act of sexual violence or something happened yeah. there for him to kind of own her like that and be so coward to his, to his power. I think there's a lot of uh, disturbing kind of intent that's implied by the, uh, um, by Carmen trying to, you know, introduce it as a cute story and uh, you know, how they met and Vidal saying, you know, don't talk such stories cause he just doesn't want to go there. Um, he only really wants uh, a son to kind of continue the legacy of, you know, his father was this famed soldier and he's trying to continue his legacy with uh, with uh, a son. So now he's done with her. He has that obsession with, with watches, too. He's always working on watches. He's very meticulous. And he uh, there's the story about how his father smashed his watch on the battlefield just as he was about to die because he wanted his son to know when he died. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, he's very sort of, you can, he's driven by kind of being in the shadow of that father. Like, uh, don't they talk about the father being a general and Mm -hmm. he's, he's the captain. So he's kind of not, he's, he's driven by the inability to kind of live up to the general. And, um, it's, it's a, for his story, it's very much about fathers and sons and, the effect that that one can have on the other, and uh, it's it's uh, I found that interesting. Sure. 
Um, might, might talk about that later in themes. Yeah. But the one thing I, I, I after all these watch after all these uh, no pun intended watches I've done mm-hmm. is the watch that he has is that supposed to be his father's watch? Because he tells the uh, the uh, I think it's the mayor who's telling about that story about uh, Captain Vidal's father. Um, Vidal says like uh, you know he had no such watch or whatever, but then he has a watch there and he preserves that story. I'm wondering if is is the implication that he took that watch and repaired it so that he could do the same thing to the same watch as part of that legacy. I wasn't. I'm just not sure. It could be. Um, you know, it's funny that both movies we've talked about on here are the nominees. Uh, they have, uh, you know, minor plot elements revolving around watches. <laughs> I wonder how many in a row we can do that has watch, watch talk. <laughs> Is it watch worthy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mercedes having been discovered to be a spy tries to escape with Ophelia, but they are caught. Ophelia, mistaken as a traitor, is locked in her bedroom, while Mercedes is taken to be interrogated and tortured. Mercedes frees herself, stabs Vidal, uh, boy, that's a way to say it, uh, and rejoins the rebels. The fawn, having changed his mind about giving Ophelia a chance to perform the third task, returns and tells her to bring her newborn brother into the labyrinth to complete it. Ophelia successfully retrieves the baby and flees into the labyrinth. Vidal pursues her as the rebels launch an attack on the outpost. Ophelia meets the fawn at the center of the labyrinth. So I feel like this is blowing through a lot of the plot of this movie, this one paragraph. Um, but the uh, let's uh, let's focus on Mercedes at this point because as the mother dies. Well, really, as the mother, from the beginning, she hasn't really been a motherly influence on Ophelia, but Mercedes was there at the, I keep calling it the mill. Is that, there, is that what it is? Yeah. Is it a mill? Yeah. yeah. And uh, she's there, and I think she's basically the, the mother of the film. Uh, she's the, the mother to Ophelia at this point in her life. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, h- how did you like the, the angle about Mercedes and the rebels and the action? Because a lot of the big action uh, outside the three tasks is uh, in this particular story. Yeah, she drives a lot of it, and uh, yeah, I think the previous time, uh, like my, what I really, really focused on this this watch was uh, how they characterize Captain Vidal a lot more. The the previous time we watched it, uh, really talked about Mercedes being uh, just just an overall awesome hero of the entire movie, you know, through ingenuity yeah. and intuition and her guile. Um, pretty much foils all of Francoist Spain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, she's uh, she's a pretty great character and and plays the tension of uh, the dual life really well. Um, in her like little looks to Doctor Ferrero or mm-hmm. they're, them having a prisoner in there, you always kind of have that tension in your stomach. Like, are they going to? F- figure out Mercedes because as a viewer, like you really identify with her and you, you know, you kind of, you're rooting for her. Um, she does a great job and I love the way she frees herself and uses a symbol of her servitude, like a kitchen knife just for cutting potatoes as like a way to free herself. Um, I think it's, it's, it's pretty poetic doing that. And that's the way that she can go join the rebels. But I think Mercedes is a great, uh, great heroine character. I do too. You know, like you said, the tension at the mill 
kind of revolves around her, even mm-hmm. though this is Ophelia's story. When Ophelia is out doing tasks for the fawn, you feel the tension surrounding Ophelia and her decisions. And, you know, is she going to survive this encounter with the toad or the pale man or whatever? Whereas at the mill, I mean, Ophelia certainly has some danger uh, that she's exposed to, but it's really Mercedes that, that causes you to kind of hold your breath at times that like, is she going to get caught? Is she, cause you, you're, it's established early that she is, uh, you know, a spy and, She's uh, she is a, a a really great character for um, maintaining that tension. Yeah, and that tension ratchets up, and the stakes get higher when Doctor Ferrero is found out and killed. Mm-hmm. And how he figures it out is, you know, with the comparing the two antibiotic ampules. So you know that the captain's not a dummy, and he already knows that there are people in the mill that are, you know, working with the resistance. So I think uh, Guillermo del Toro does a great job of ratcheting up that tension on a character we love, because he's already killed a member of the resistance, you know, somewhat passive member of the resistance, and we have our beloved Mercedes, like, right in the firing squad. Speaking of the resistance, do these guys just like live just at the boundary of the woods or something? They 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 always seem to be in whatever direction someone rides out into the woods. They always seem to be right around the next tree or something. <laughs> and they uh, the camera pans and like, oh, there was a hundred people right here. <laughs> Where do they come from? <laughs> Excellent hiders. <laughs> they are really good at that. Um, there there's one scene in the movie, and I think it's the attack on the outpost where. Uh, you see the explosions in the woods from the um, from the rebels, and they're mm-hmm. very colorful. And uh, I read that they uh, had to kind of create fake explosions there. Obvious, I mean, not like movie fake, but just like they they couldn't use regular uh, pyrotechnics because there was a severe drought at the time this mm-hmm. was being filmed, and so there was a there was a danger to uh, you know setting off little explosions in the woods. Obviously, yeah. Oh, which is interesting. Um, so she, uh, how about the scene where she steals her brother from her stepfather's room? She does With, what? Uh, she, 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 oh, she Ophelia, gets her yeah. brother. Yeah. Ophelia. Sorry. I thought you were talking about Mercedes. <laughs> I, I whiffed a whole. I saw the, I saw the extended <laughs> version of this where there's a weird side plot about Mercedes. Stealing? No. Uh, yeah, where Ophelia uh, steals her baby brother. Yeah, like a little uh, Metal Gear Solid side story right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knocking on, or Last of Us, like knocking or throwing a rock in the other direction kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty cute. Um, I don't think there's any actual tension of thinking that she's going to get found out right there. No. Like, we, we have our three quests. Like, we got we to gotta go do this, you know? <laughs> That would be very disappointing if we if the fawn wants the baby brother and you're wondering why and then he she just gets caught by by the stepfather. <laughs> that yeah. would be yeah. So like you said, there, there's no real doubt that she's going to make it out of there. But anytime Vidal is around, though, there is I think tension for me where even if even if I know she's going to escape, I'm still wondering what awful thing he's going to do to her or some other random person just yeah. in the midst of that escape. So yeah, that's that's fair. Um. Okay, the fawns suggest drawing a small amount of the baby's blood, as completing the third task and opening the portal to the underworld requires the blood of an innocent. But Ophelia refuses to harm her brother. Vidal finds her talking to the fawn, whom he cannot see. The fawn leaves, and Vidal takes the baby from Ophelia's arms before shooting her. Vidal returns to the labyrinth's entrance, where he is surrounded by rebels, including Mercedes and Pedro. 
Knowing that he will be killed, he hands the baby to Mercedes and asks that she tell his son the exact time of his death. Mercedes refuses, telling him that his son will not even know his name. Pedro then shoots Vidal dead. So first off, the Fawn's task. Um, the, first off, um, again, this is just more of a comical uh, criticism of the Fawn, but you know, people might be more willing to draw amount, an, an amount of the baby's blood if maybe you had a syringe instead of a large knife <laughs> that you retrieved from the pale man who's used it for God knows what. So, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I feel like if you're trying to suggest... Although, I, obviously, the, the real test here is to see if what Ophelia will... How she will handle that task. Yeah. And uh, what's important here is not that, the, the, you know, it's a baby. So, that's like, uh, you know, that's the symbol of innocence there. But also, it's a baby that she's resented. So, mm-hmm. it's it's not just that she has the fond memories of the baby and it reminds her of her father. We have none of those scenes. You know, she resents the baby for, you know, he says, when you come out, don't hurt my mother. And that's exactly what the baby does. And she's still not harming him in kind of theme speak. You know, on the other hand, like, you know, we're probably not going to see a child cut open a baby. <laughs> in a, that would be beyond like an R-rated movie. <laughs> So I did read that in the original draft of this uh, film that he was it was going to be a a woman falling in love with the fawn and getting pregnant. So you know, woman uh, something he would later get to do finally with Shape of Water yeah, is have go. you know monster monster lady sex. And uh, but he uh, he he was going to have them uh, fall in love, have a have offspring, and then have to uh, kill the offspring immediately to, uh, to, to become the, the princess. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad he went away from that. He's, he said the original, his original version of Pan's Labyrinth was much, much darker in his words, yeah, uh, which this, is impressive. Yeah. This, this wasn't, isn't super light, but that would be much, much darker. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, Ophelia presumably passes the test by not, harming the innocent and uh, uh, Vidal shows up and rewards her with a bullet. And uh, then we see her. Um, well, I guess we, we don't cut back to her just yet because the, we, we didn't mention that the movie starts with an image of Ophelia um, dead on, or presumably dead mm-hmm. on a stone pillar or tablet of some sort. Uh, and, uh, so we don't quite get the resolution there just yet. Instead, we see what happens to Vidal. And the um, what Mercedes says to Vidal is so cold and the most perfect thing she could say to him. I mean, I don't know that anything could inflict more pain on him than what she says. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if any physical injury could hurt him more than what she says to him. And that will that he will be forgotten mm-hmm. um which is uh after watching him just you know commit atrocity upon atrocity for uh, you know the, this entire movie it's very fulfilling to see him get his uh, that that uh punishment right there yeah <clears throat> she's been around him so she knows the she knows his most perfect weakness and uh you know just just uh just abuses it right before he dies and it's it's just perfect poetic 
uh, revenge on this guy that we have seen heaps of uh, heaps of atrocities he's he's uh, committed in the name of legacy and to see him get his his uh, most perfect just desserts is that's a super satisfying part of that movie and especially him uh, you know he kind of goes uh, I don't know if he goes a little uh, goes a little crazy or whatever he's he's not really interested in the rebel attack anymore and he's just kind of looking for his son um he's, well, he's, he's always kind of about no known, known he, he kind of knows he lo- he lost there in that he let someone close to him who he didn't consider even a person you know um take advantage of him and scar him physically <clears throat> we know how meticulous he is and then he's just um he's kind of just uh flailing at that point He's so controlling throughout the movie that, you know, he, he walks out, he assesses the situation, he knows he's going to die, and he still tries to exert some control over the situation by giving instructions to his killers mm-hmm. as to what they will do once he is dead. And I love that they just reject that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like in because the... Because it's... Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I like, I like yeah. in the rain how when he comes out of the entrance of the... Uh, Entrance of the labyrinth, they're all just silently looking at him like he it's just a perfect portent of doom right there for him. And a, a just a, uh, a, I don't know, a justice of doom, a doom of justice, whatever you'd call it. But it's it's kind of just a picture perfect there. And also, if you weren't quite sure it, how you would feel about the rebels executing the captain, um, uh Del Toro has him shoot a small, uh, a little child in the back right before, so it makes you, it makes it a little easier to go down. Yeah. Um, Mercedes enters the labyrinth and comforts a motionless but breathing Ophelia. Drops of Ophelia's blood fall down the center of the spiral stone staircase onto an altar. Ophelia, well dressed and uninjured, then appears in a golden throne room. The king of the underworld tells her that by choosing to spill her own blood rather than that of another innocent. She passed the final test. The fawn praises Ophelia for her choice, addressing her once more as your highness. The queen of the underworld, her mother, invites Ophelia to sit next to her father and rule at his side. Back in the stone labyrinth, Ophelia smiles as she dies in Mercedes' arms. The epilogue completes the tale of Princess Moana, stating that she returned to the underworld ruled wisely for many centuries and left quiet traces of her time in the human realm visible only to those who know where to look. So see, David, you you just don't know where to look. If you think this was all imagined, uh, there's the flower, the beautiful flower from where she hung her dress on the, on the tree. Yeah. I think this, uh, last scene as well as the first scene is, is the biggest, uh, the biggest, um, branching off point. If you think, does, did it really happen, or is it uh, imagined? Um, especially with uh, considering that first scene and kind of the bookends of, you know, we're seeing her kind of uh, rosebud style at the end and then coming back to it. Uh, I guess, spoiler alert, Citizen Kane. <laughs> you, you go back to rosebud. But, um, yeah, that... You have that vision, which I think is, uh, upon this view, and just just uh, my my take that it's it's not really happening. That uh, she's kind of thinking back on what happened, and in her mind is 
this is my thought. I think her mind is is uh, structured with these fairy tales that she's kind of <clears throat> confronting this trauma that happened and putting these magical touches in it. I think one of the things that kind of tipped it in that direction for me is that the queen is uh, her mother. Carmen is is the queen. It's not even like a, it's another person or that the right. fawn would have said, like, your mother really looks like the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Striking resemblance. Um, yeah, she's I think kinda, that is like a dream. You're populating these these figures with people from your life kind of thing. And maybe the, I, the king there, you know, we never meet her dad. That could right. be what he actually looked like. I don't know. I think that is definitely the biggest clue towards her imagining it, uh, even if I... But I think Del Toro makes puts clues for both mm-hmm. interpretations in the movie. And I think, it's, I think they're there for a reason, and I think it's there so that we're not sure exactly. Uh, and maybe we're not supposed to be sure. Maybe being sure isn't... The, maybe it's the spinning top at the end of Inception. Uh, spoiler alert. And... Uh, <laughs> We uh, we're not maybe maybe it doesn't matter um, if she really is the princess of the underworld because she uh, lived her life as if she were and she made decisions as if she were and uh, she, so I I don't know but I I, I do like uh, I do like the ending a lot yeah it's it's a it's a nice grace note for for the movie that does end in the death of a of a child that um, he's at least a painting some kind of happily ever after whether it's Mm -hmm. imagined or real it's at least uh you know something that is a little bright in the dimness of the ending well i think we've already covered whether we think this is uh real or imagined and we landed on different sides of that coin um yeah the fun part uh, is that uh guillermo del toro in interviews has uh he has a side and he he said that it's real which i would expect him to think that well, I don't, I'm not saying he's wrong or anything. Obviously, he's he's the master, and I'm just someone who's watched it. <laughs> but well, you know, he's a, he's a, I think he's he's a strong filmmaker, and I think he knows the film that he made, and I think he is interpreting it as a viewer, kind of uh, on his own. Like I think he knows that he made a film that can be interpreted both ways. I don't think he's telling people they're wrong. No, no, no. If they think it's imagined, and he and I think yeah, he's he said as much in the interview that that he uh, you know it can be. There, there's there's kind of clues for both, and he thinks it's interesting people having different things. So he definitely that's definitely intentional. Yeah, and it's the, the movie is powerful enough in both, uh, regardless of how you interpret that. Um, so I have one question, and it's not in our notes first. So I, I want to get to this first because uh, we did it wasn't covered in the plot description. The story about the blue rose on top of the mountain mm-hmm. um, with. Uh, how, how how would you connect that to this movie? Because it, it's a it's a fairy tale that is highlighted. So what's your what's your take on that one? Where the the, the story, as a reminder to the listeners, is uh, there is a, a rose that grows on top of a mountain, and the thorns are poisonous. Uh, however, if you pluck the rose, I believe you are granted immortality, and uh, it, the rose has never been approached or even sought after because of its poisonous thorns. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna be honest. I don't really have a good answer for what it's supposed to represent. I could uh, spin something about, I don't know, actually leading a pure innocent life, or you know, it's a parable for the rule of Spain in World War Two. But I, I honestly don't have a good, I don't have a good uh, theory for what it means. Do, do you? <laughs> I, 
my hunch was maybe it's very simple, but maybe it was it was uh, something that leads Ophelia to her final decision in the third task, mm-hmm. which is um, if you're not willing to represent or if you're not willing to risk some self harm, then uh, you're you're never going to gain. If you're not willing to risk harm to yourself, at least you're not going to gain that which is what you seek the most, that which is most valuable to you. And so I think when she is willing to put herself at risk, um, uh, really over and over again in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately there with her baby brother, then um, that's the only way she maybe can believe that she can become the princess of the underworld and return to being Moana is uh, by seeking the rose in a way rather than staying clear. Sure. I think that's uh, I think that's a really keen observation there. Um, yeah, the rose is probably the end of her journey there, where she's returned with her, uh, you know, with her baby brother at the end to the the magical kingdom, and uh, she has to make the ultimate sacrifices right there in front of it. So, uh, the biggest, yeah, I mentioned at the start that I've I've always had kind of trouble putting this movie together and I've seen it. I've kind of always seen this as two really good movies, uh, individual movies inside of one movie. And, uh, you know, there's the story of 1944 Spain. And then there's the story of, uh, Ophelia and the fawn and the, the fairy tale. And it's not that I think they don't work well together, but I am wondering what your thoughts are about why this setting is paired with this fairy tale. Sure. So I think it goes to what I think the overall theme is for the movie, which I think is the power of stories. And as a storyteller himself, what Guillermo del Toro kind of gives the viewer is um, the connection there, I think is the, the reason for these stories and the power of these stories in these times of trauma is like a way to escape and a way to maybe deal with that trauma and violence of the real world is to contextualize it or symbolize it to make it something that that is more digestible than the you know the grotesque violence and inhumanity that we see so we have stories that uh ophelia both tells and is following that kind of distract her from the brutality of living with this tyrant who's willing to kill someone at a moment's notice. Her life is constantly in danger. And I think it's a, uh, could be a coping. This is part of why I think it's, uh, it's not real is it's, Mm -hmm. it's partially a coping mechanism that the, uh, that the constant danger she finds herself in, there must be a reason for it. There must be a, you know, a blue rose at the end of this thorny hill, you Mm -hmm. know, so to speak. Um, And you also have the power of storytelling that uh, I took this time from the captains. You know, it's not a written story, but it's the verbal story that powers everything he does is the story of legacy of, you know, the legacy of soldiers and his family that, he is trying to continue and trying to um, continue that story from his father, the general, through him to his son. And I think that's kind of the connecting factor for me is both both uh, the World War II setting or the, the Franco-Spain setting and the 
fairy tale setting are talking about the power of uh, power of stories. It can be kind of a good force to help Ophelia process trauma and kind of not be, you know, catatonic in the environment she's in. And it can be, you know, it can be a force of uh, if it's mm-hmm. compelling enough, it can be a force of evil you know it's the captain's legacy or it's a lie that a fascist government tells its people um not to get too a uh, research paper about it but that's what i always <laughs> saw as the like the kind of reason why we have stories in the middle of this thing that's interesting and it is a compelling argument and not one i can really disagree with it's um uh... I don't know. I, I, I still feel like I'm going to always kind of feel like this movie is two halves that are kind of placed uh, on the same dish without necessarily being a whole. But um, I they, they do go really well together. Um, yeah. I, I think so, of them as a, a yin and yang, like an acid mm-hmm. and a salt uh, in a dish. They... They they don't connect except where I'm kind of bringing the connection, probably mostly what I'm bringing to it in terms of kind of looking for it. But really, they are just they kind of make sense because they're so opposed to each other. You have the uh, the bright golden hues and the colors and the, the ornaments <clears throat> of the fairy tale and the gray, muddy um totalitarian rigid story of what's actually happening at the mill and it's it's like a mill you're crushing things you know yeah um what do you make of the the fact i read this in a review that uh apparently the the fantasy aspect of this movie so her dealings with the fawn the pale man etc uh constitutes less than 20 percent of the runtime of the movie (laughs) Which I think is interesting because yeah. it, at the beginning it seems like the movie is going to be all about this uh, fairy tale quest, and as it, it winds up being less than a fifth of the movie in total. Well, that's that's interesting. If you would have asked me to guess how much of it was, it was I'd probably say like fifty percent, forty percent. Yeah, you know, another kind of a you know Harry Lime effect of you know it's just it it sticks with you a lot. So or like Hannibal Lecter. You know, being mm-hmm. such an indelible character, but he's in 15 minutes of the movie kind of thing. Um, that's really interesting. I, di- I didn't know how little of it that was because I thought it was such like an equal equal parts this and equal parts that. Maybe because yeah. some of the World War, World War II and Resistance stuff is is very well done, but it is it's it's not things I've never seen before, you know. Right. Whereas the, well, you know, the fairy tale is, is things I've literally never seen before and probably don't want to ever see again. <laughs> so. I'm I'm not and I'm not calling him cheap in any way, but you know, you think about how much of his like effects budget and his creations go into these uh fantasy aspects and you know, it's probably for the best for the sanity of the filmmaking crew if they keep that to as much of a minimum as possible. <laughs> You know, and make them really hit hard when they're on screen, like the Pale Man and the Toad and everything. And so, you know, those scenes run fairly short and quick, whereas uh, the rest of the movie is just, they're just actors in in costumes acting. And so you can stretch those scenes out a little more. And, and, Mm -hmm. and you know, I'm not necessarily saying that's the reason for that split, but it certainly makes uh, filmmaking a little easier if you uh, give the 
give humans acting in costumes just more time on screen. And uh, I'm sure his, uh, one of his uh, producers or his, uh, you know, anyone, anyone he answers to, which probably not many people in this movie, but anyone he answers to is like, Hey, can we, can we, can we have a little less on the, um, uh, on the, what's this you ordered? You ordered a, a toad layer. Um, how, 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 how intricate does this toad layer need to be? Yeah. Can't we just have people talk to each other? Some, I read, I read something that there was supposed to be another story that Ophelia tells about a dragon that, uh, there's some story about a dragon and that's probably like a producer note. It's like, okay, we'll give you the pale man. We'll even give you this, this thorn on top of a hill. That's straight CGI, but we got to cut out a dragon. <laughs> yeah dragons are hot right now we we do not have the dragons have to look really good and we that's like an it's gonna double the cost of this movie to uh to dragon it up um so uh i see that you you've noted uh <laughs> catholic themes popping up again so this you know continuing so watches and catholicism die hard and pan's labyrinth definitely movies i think of yeah i just i, just, uh, I saw it on a uh, i think i think it was on the wikipedia or something about uh the role of catholicism in it um guillermo del toro grew up in a very uh strict religious household his um two parents who were uh there were uh mexicans of spanish descent um they had to work a lot so he was with his grandmother who was very strict and would even uh, i read something in an interview that they would he she she would put like broken bottle caps in his shoes so he would physically um have penance like yeah like oh. um yeah like uh what's that uh the, the Dan Brown style. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci the, Code uh, style. I think it's called a Solis. Yeah. That he straps to himself. So so that's kind of where he grew up. So what he can, he considers this a profane film, which is either a uh, uh, castigation or a criticism of the church. Um, and specifically called out the, the pale man preferring uh, children was a criticism of the Catholic church, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty pointed and pretty, I guess, obvious in hindsight, but maybe one of those things is just kind of a subliminal, um, thing you could pick up on. Um, I don't have too much to talk about it. Uh, the, the article also says that, uh, his, his, uh, buddy, one of his three amigos, uh, Alejandro in in Gonzalez in does consider it a Catholic film that it is, uh, there's a lot of Catholic themes in it. Like it's not just a uh, profane um, rejection of Catholicism, but you could read Catholic uh, morals in it. But and I mean, she she is a you know a Christ like uh, you know a John McClane like figure. <laughs> yeah. you, you can make that argument. So. so yeah, I just I just uh, I had to bring that up because oof, I saw I saw it in it again. So <laughs> just touch on it briefly. All right, let's get to the Oscar nominations, as this is an Oscar-nominated movie. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. So uh, it was nominated for six Oscars, and it won three. So um, I, I don't know how these are uh, organized. Are these by um, by prominence, I guess? Or uh, I think I, I think that's the way. I think I did the order here, and it was maybe the order they're given out in the ceremony, or um, I'm not sure. But... Uh, Let's, let's do makeup first. It won for best makeup against Apocalypto and 
the Oscar-nominated film Click. <laughs> this is the same category Adam where you Sam. have like Oscar-nominated Norbit and Oscar-nominated Suicide Squad or Oscar-winning Suicide Squad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this one's pretty obvious for me. With all the practical effects... Um, yeah, it won, and I think it wins in a landslide with me, with my personal 2006 Oscars now. Um, I, I, I'll admit, I haven't seen Apocalypto, but I've, I, uh, I've seen a lot of the images and I've seen the trailer for it. It's, it is impressive makeup in that, but I mean, I just gotta say, the Pale Man. <laughs> yeah. They, they do a lot of the I, Pale I, Man I, and the Fawn as practical, and, and a lot of the, uh, the gore is practical. Um, so they, they do a really great job there. Yeah, the, the makeup in this movie is very showy. Like, it's obviously great makeup. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I didn't even write down notes for this particular award because it's uh, it's just, I mean, it's very clear why this one. So, yep. uh, very well done. Um, it was nominated for Best Cinematography against The Black Dahlia. Which is I, I did not know that movie garnered Oscar nominations. That's interesting. Uh, Children of Men, The Illusionist, and The Prestige. So a couple of magic movies, uh, <laughs> and uh, it won Best Cinematography. Uh, and uh, so, how do you feel about this award and the cinematography in the movie? Yeah, cinematography in the movie is uh, it kind of has the benefit of being two different movies, um, showing the range of the cinematographer uh, Guillermo Navarro. Um, I don't know. If, I, I don't know too much of what he's done outside of here. But you have a a classic war resistance rebel movie. You have the uh, like I was talking about that that dichotomy of the imagery of everything's dour and rainy and muddy, and then the the bright flashiness of the uh, of the fairy tale scenes and the the elaborate nature of those. I think it's it, to me. I understand why it won here. But I'd probably go with uh, Children of Men. It's just, yeah. I'm such a sucker for Emmanuel Lubezki's stuff. He does very, um, uh, kind of very like like muscular, uh, eventized cinematography where there's always like that, that scene, like the unbroken scene. I think of the car going in reverse and Children of Men is mm-hmm. like one of the most thrilling scenes in, in that movie or in movies of that decade. And does does a great job. I'd probably give it to Emmanuel Lubezki. He he. I think I, I after this too. he'd go on to win three more. But uh, yeah, that's it's one of the most indelible cinematographical <laughs> movies. That's one of the best thing parts about that movie. And traveling through that broken uh, the uh, the broken building at the end. A lot of unbroken yeah. shots that are just breathless for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time doting on Children of Men, but I I agree that it's uh, um, it, it probably would have gotten my vote here. I haven't seen The Illusionist, and I haven't seen The Black Dahlia, but um, uh, Children of Men is one of those movies where it's like I would probably pick it in almost any year. Like I feel like it would be a front runner for me in this category in almost any uh, race, but. Um, the cinematography here is very good, though, and I think that it does. Uh, the movie really relies on it to um, to do some interesting things, like uh, you know, the movie begins with everything in the uh, fantasy aspect being very colorful, and it, it maintains that throughout. And everything at the mill is very drab, but uh, colors start to bleed over into the mill as uh, 
as Ophelia's journey goes on, which I thought was interesting. And also just credit to Guillermo Navarro for knowing how to shoot dark scenes because that is a frequent um, point of irritation for me in movies when uh, uh, scenes happen in dark places and I can't see what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, it happens so much in action movies and it happens in a lot of movies where, and and it makes me wonder if it's just like, you know, a a decision made to be on the cheap because you, you don't quite have to uh, have the best effects always when scenes are set in the dark. But in this case, uh, all the darker scenes are really well done and they're still really well lit even in the dark. And so it's uh, it's very impressive. Um, I'm always impressed when a cinematographer knows how to shoot dark scenes. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. A lot, a lot of times you get the simple note like dark is tension, right? <laughs> dark is uh, conflict. <laughs> But um, yeah, he, uh, that's a great point with uh, with that, and the, especially the. I hadn't really thought about the bleeding over of those fantasy elements as we're kind of swirling towards the end. You know, good job, Guillermo. And I think the cinematography kind of goes in, hand in hand with this next category, uh, and it won for best art direction. Its third Oscar of the night. It beat Dreamgirls, The Good Shepherd, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and The Prestige. So, uh, I haven't seen Dreamgirls. Uh, this isn't the strongest uh, art direction or production design category. It's not the strongest slate of movies. I feel mm-hmm. like for this uh, yeah. for this award, but uh, Pan's Labyrinth is certainly deserving. I think it is a, a masterwork in uh, production design and art direction, as most Guillermo del Toro movies tend to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that's maybe his greatest strength as a director or a filmmaker is designing places and uh sets which are just magical in nature and um you know i noticed that like again as as the two worlds begin to mix uh i noticed at one point there was a a, uh i had to i had to ask my wife what the word was for this but there was a finial i did not know that word before uh, today a finial on the banister it's the you know the little piece you might see at the bottom of a banister and it was in the shape of a fawn head And uh, in, that was at the mill. And so there are kind of interwoven references to the fantasy aspect of this movie in the real life aspect uh, or in the real life set design. And uh, I think that's really impressive. I also read that they used a lot of rounded shapes in scenes with Ophelia near the beginning and warm colors. And in scenes with Vidal, they would use a very linear shapes and uh, angles and it was a very cold look and so I think the cinematography and the art direction both really work well together in tandem in creating kind of this uh, you know the the mill being very cold and uh, almost foreign to Ophelia and make it makes sense why she would uh, seek this life in the fantasy realm yeah I don't have too much to add to that that's that's a bunch of great observations um Art direction, some something like cinematography and editing sometimes, where it's it's like I I like it, and now I need to figure out why I like it. And the touches <laughs> like the roundness or the angularness that kind of uh, go with those characters is something that I did not notice, but is all in either. the uh, you know it's all painting the overall you know masterwork there. It's all the things that go into it that you know you may not notice, but it it gets the out the uh, I don't know. The desired effect is is pretty darn good. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think anything else here is really close. I've seen everything here except for dream girls. Um, I guess closest I'd go is probably the prestige. You know, any Christopher Nolan movie is, is going to be meticulous. He's a real captain V doll type in that respect. (laughs) Um, he, he likes his, uh, clocks and elements of time. Uh, we have uh, Best Original Score, which it was nominated for. It did not win. Uh, it was nominated against uh, Babel, which won. It was also nominated against The Good German, Notes on a Scandal, and The Queen. I haven't seen... Uh, I Actually, I've seen Babel, uh, but I don't recall the score. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But um, I actually went and listened to the score today for Pan's Labyrinth. I listened to it on Spotify, the, the entire uh, soundtrack. And... It's very, you know, it's whimsical in the fantasy um, scenes, and it's very sorrowful a lot. There's a lot of very kind of sad violin playing, mm-hmm. um, but not in an ironic, funny way. Sad violin, but uh, the uh, there are two tracks that uh, I do recommend. Uh, one is called "A Princess," which is, I think, the end of the movie. I love the music at the very end when she uh, goes into the the underworld realm. Uh, and then, for me, the highlight of the uh, score was uh, a track called "Not Human!" Exclamation point! And it's the uh, it's the Pale Man score uh, because even just listening to the music, the the sudden thump of the Pale Man coming to life mm-hmm. is just it put my like my hairs on my arms stood up. Uh, when just listening to it because it reminded me of, of him, you know, kind of ratcheting to life and uh, really, really well done in that respect. But what did you think about the score? I, I just, I have to go back and listen because I have trouble, I have trouble thinking about the score mm-hmm. while I'm watching a movie. Yeah. This is, this is back in my uh, score phase where I had, I actually had this original soundtrack for Pan's Labyrinth and I had the original nice. Babel soundtrack too. Of the, I had so I had two of the five. Um, yeah, th- those are great tracks, and the the one you're not mentioning is the one where, when you told me we're gonna watch Pan's Labyrinth, the thing that goes through my head is Ophelia's lullaby that Mercedes sings. That's like the entire like late motif throughout the entire movie mm. is the da 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 da. I'm surprised mm-hmm. I haven't started humming it. It's I've been humming it in my head <laughs> throughout this entire thing, but I'm um, just really simplistic and. It feels like it could have been a lullaby forever, you know, just really simple notes and sad and beautiful. I think it's a, um, yeah, that's, that's the piece of music I, I think about when I think of Penn's Labyrinth. And I think, uh, Guillermo del Toro had said that, uh, he asked Javier, uh, Navarrete, I think he's the composer here to, uh, pretty much the entire soundtrack was built around that one lullaby and then mm. kind of built score around all the scenes so it's really good i will say that the babble score is is pretty fantastic that's one of the best parts of the movie for me um just because it's it's uh it's one of those far-ranging things which is i think is why it's why it won um either i think in the oscars especially around this time you either win for like the biggest or you're showing the broadest range and the Mm -hmm. babble score shows the broadest range is you have the simple guitar um, actually, I don't think it's a guitar. I think it's a Middle Eastern uh, instrument. I forgot its name for the uh, the scene set in uh, in the Middle East with the uh, the with the uh, the tragedy around the tourist and the boy with the hunting rifle. 
Um, and you have electronic score with, uh, um, I forget the other, there's some other composers that, uh, that, uh, um, collaborated with him but it's an electronic score that is in japan in tokyo with the mute mm. character and there yeah. is um there's a mariachi music and a bullient um horns for the mexican scenes that are at the wedding um it probably shows the widest range of any of these but uh and yeah and if uh this it's gustavo santao santao uh, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, so I apologize. But um, his guitar-driven score is also in Brokeback Mountain, which is a, a great score. Mm. And uh, in Last of Us, he does the score for those those games. And um, yeah, kind of did the uh, does a great job with the the guitar, or at least that guitar-sounding stringed instrument, uh, giving it a lot of soul in in that score so this is again this is back in my score phase where i i have this <laughs> album and i have some favorite tracks for the Babel one so i might still give it to Babel, but um yeah the pan's labyrinth score is also phenomenal uh and what i think is maybe the biggest surprise in that it was a you know nominated for six oscars uh it was nominated for best foreign language film and did not win which i think is kind of a surprise given the fact that it was a you know a six-time nominee, uh, it was nominated against After the Wedding, Days of Glory, which is an Algerian film. After the Wedding's from Denmark, uh, The Lives of Others, which is from Germany, and it won. And then it was also nominated against the Canadian film Water, which I don't know. I just chuckle at the fact that there's a Canadian film that's just called Water, uh, and I don't know what that is like. And um, I, I'm guessing it must be from Quebec uh, to be a foreign language film. It's actually a, a Hindi movie. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. There's some kind of, uh, there's been, I think, two um, like uh, Indian movies that uh, have been nominated out of Canada now. Um, hmm. It's just some kind of, I don't know if it's a, I don't want to call it a technicality, but it's just like a, a co-production where there's some some setting, but it's mainly in uh, in Hindi. Well, I will say I've seen After the Wedding and I've seen Pan's Labyrinth. And of the two, I would vote for Pan's Labyrinth, um, even though I did very much like After the Wedding. Um, but uh, what do you think about the lives of others winning here? And what would your vote have gone to? Yeah, I've, I've seen the lives of others. And I saw it as a, as you know, I was an Oscar fan back in 2006 and 2007 when these awards happened. I'd seen Pan's Labyrinth in the theaters and I was, you know, really happy when it was winning all this stuff. Then it lost to the lives of others. I was like, what is this movie? <laughs> There's some German, like, a, all right, it's a German Cold War movie. It's, you know, we've probably seen that a bunch of times. I ended up watching it um, a little later. It's it's a it's a really good movie. It does yeah, a really I'm great sure. job. It's like a... It's like a, a German version of kind of the, uh, the conversation... Like it's about uh, Cold War um, wiretapping and a man who gets too involved and in people that he is uh, he's uh, doing surveillance for. It's it's pretty phenomenal. But uh, that being said, I'd probably still give it to Pan's Labyrinth. You know, I have it as a higher ranked movie than Lives of Others. But if you haven't checked it out, I'd definitely check out Lives of Others if it's streaming somewhere. It's it's a uh, it's a pretty worthy film. It's uh, it's in our uh, pool of movies, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> all I guess of all of these are... we'll probably get to, right? <laughs> yeah, if we live forever, yeah. <laughs> um, it may take that. 
Uh, Best original screenplay was the final nomination, which is pretty impressive for a foreign language film. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was nominated against Babel, Letters from Iwo Jima, Little Miss Sunshine, and The Queen. And Little Miss Sunshine won Best Original Screenplay. So uh, what are your feelings on this category? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I, I know I kind of know why Little Miss Sunshine won. It's uh, in all these movies. It's kind of the feel good one, and it's kind of in the original screenplay. There's kind of a slot for this kind of winner of like the the quirky one can win an original screenplay. It's kind of like uh, the next year we have Juno winning this the same Oscar in kind of a similar way. Is it's kind mm. of the the quirky and not. Um, disturbing or violent or depressing one out of this whole bunch. Or, I mean, the Queen's here too. Um, I guess that's not violent or depressing, but it's it's the Queen. I mean, we've uh, we've all... We, we know what that movie is. Um, so, it, yeah, I... Little Miss Sunshine is, is a well-written script, and it's very quirky and very um, individualistic, like... Uh, but uh, I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen it since I first saw it. I wonder if it, it would, uh, you know, lose some of the luster like some of those movies tend to do. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't know. It's a very talky movie. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's 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 dialogue driven, which I think tends to play well in this category. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, it's uh, I, I can see why it won. I don't think this. Uh, I don't think the contenders. I don't think the better screenplays of the category were necessarily screenplays that uh, tend to get a lot of attention uh, in this category, like Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, it's it's hard to expect a Spanish-language movie to win Best Original Screenplay. Um, yep, unless you're Pedro Almodovar, and then he, he might. <laughs> has he won? He has won, yeah. Oh, awesome. Uh, well, um, and like the yeah. Babel's in there. I, I, I'm a defender of Babel, but uh, it, it kind of those Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu movies where it's like, here's a bunch of different stories and they're completely out of chronology. Um, it, there's kind of oh, oh, so many times you can kind of play that of three stories that are kind of connected and it's kind of like three short stories. It, they tend to get nominated, but it's not my favorite kind of screenplay something that does that so do you think uh do you think pan's labyrinth should have been nominated in any other categories where it was not um other than i guess best picture yeah i i probably would have put it in there the one i think it should have been in um is a category that doesn't exist yet (laughs) and it is motion capture or voice acting oscar Ah. (laughs) the best doug jones slash uh uh, Andy, Andy Circus, Circus yeah. performance of the year. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll round off uh, here with our final thoughts. And uh, that's where we talk about the cast. And uh, then we'll finish with a little GDT talk and, um, and then delve into the silliness of the database. So, uh, uh, first off, the cast. So we have Ivana Baccaro as Ophelia. Um, I thought she was very good in this movie. I'm, I don't know about you. Yeah, I will. I will put the disclaimer that we usually put out there is that uh, it is it's hard for us to judge um, 
acting in a foreign language because we're reading subtitles and we can see performance, but we probably don't even know how great it is not knowing the actual language or seeing like the rest of Spanish Mexican cinema to compare it to. So I'll just Mm -hmm. put that little disclaimer in there. If it seems like we're not going or I'm not going too far in depth into it, it's because I, I don't really have the, uh, you know, too much of the ability to say what, you know, what parts of the Castilian dialect that they mastered, because there's definitely a Barcelona um, um, accent to a lot of these people. Like, I'm not going to be able to adequately tell how great they did at that. Well, and I'm, I'm spending a good portion of this movie reading subtitles. And so I'm, I, I, I can't, I, I watch them as much as I can, but I can't watch them 100% of the time. Yeah. So... It's, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I'm not great at um, weighing in on these performances, but there is, there are, I think, three that I am going to feel very comfortable weighing in on, and it's, it's the next three on this list. Uh, Sergi Lopez as uh, Captain Vidal is fantastic in this movie. Uh, apparently GDT found him in, uh, or it knows him from uh, prior work or prior acquaintances maybe, but he had a he was mostly known for like Spanish soap operas, I want to say. And you can kind of see it. You can kind of see his soap opera background a little bit in this movie, but it translates really well to this to this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is he is a he is a force in this movie and uh, not a force of good, but he he does a great job conveying the omnipresent evil and like unyielding meticulousness um he does that really great a lot of great physicality he brings to it in in shaving or standing completely you know straight waiting to meet the uh ophelia and her mother you know just just the way he walks and the you hear the leather like cinch and crunch and she's he's just like a force mm-hmm. uh as Mercedes, we have Maribel Verdu, who I also think is very, very good in this movie. Uh, however, not my favorite Maribel Verdu performance, uh, because she's incredible in Itumama Tambien. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. I didn't, I didn't place her at first. Um, she's, she's in a very different kind of capacity here. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's she's a great uh, heroine that's got to wear a bunch of hats, right? She's the spy, mm-hmm. she's the mother, she's the uh, spy for the other side. <laughs> she's the maid. She's trying to be unassuming and still being powerful. I think she's she's great in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. She's probably the closest um, I, I would have to like a actual acting nomination to getting like supporting actress or so. Um, yeah, I think she's really good. And then finally, Doug Jones as the fawn and the pale man. Um, he's he's very good as the fawn, and he actually learned Spanish, even though um, GDT told him he didn't have to deliver his lines in Spanish, and he was planning on dubbing over anyway, but he wanted it to be a, a good interaction, so he learned Spanish for this movie, <laughs> uh, or at least he learned the Spanish lines for this movie, and uh, um, he's uh, it just uh, he's very good as the fawn, but my goodness, the, his five minutes as the pale man, or ever how long that took, uh, it's just incredible. Yeah, 
Yeah, he's 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 completely unnerving as the pale man. I'd say I almost prefer him as the fawn though. Um, that could be a ridiculous character if it is not played right. There's like a high sure. degree of difficulty there, and yeah. I know there there's a lot of it that's the makeup, and there's a lot of it that's the sound design for how he moves, like like impacted earth, like the mm-hmm. rocks cracking against each other or vines snapping over like wood is kind of what he sounds like, but just like the way he's like he has like a stuttering movement and a shiftiness that really uh, sells. You know, are you supposed to trust this guy or not? Like he is, uh, he's charismatic as a fawn. <laughs> you know, yeah. You you kind of wanna wanna listen to him and you want to believe him, but he's also he's definitely with his physicality sells like the mischief of. He kind of has that creepy grin when you know here's a giant knife for a baby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. This isn't like a uh, this isn't like a nice warm cuddly fawn like Mister Tumness. <laughs> who was in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Is uh, James uh, McAvoy? This is uh, this is a beastly looking thing, and uh, it's I would I mean I'm you know Ophelia would have any good reason to just be terrified of this thing as soon as she saw it and run yeah. from the labyrinth. But um, but you're right, and and you're right about the degree of difficulty. The Pale Man is obviously the more kind of juicy, the 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 one that's probably both more fun to play and easier to play yeah because it's it's you know i've i've compared like going back to like daniel day lewis and you know gangs of new york is uh it's a good performance it's a very good performance but it's also the one that's probably the easiest for him because it's just you know pure intensity the whole time whereas something like phantom thread is a little quieter and a little more difficult and so that's a you know a performance that impresses me more and i think uh i think you make a good point about you know, these two being kind of, I, I don't know, I, I, I see them in a similar way. Um, are there any other performances in this movie you want to highlight? Um, not not specifically. Everyone does a, a, does a pretty great job of selling their, their part of this world, but uh, no, nothing too much else. Okay, well, let's jump to Guillermo del Toro. And um, so uh, is this your favorite del toro film and uh i I can say that it is i think it is pretty it despite him having won a best picture (laughs) for another movie it still feels like this is his most revered film by most people yeah you know a lot of the times you don't win the oscar for your best movie you win it for the 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 movie after that where it's like he doesn't have an oscar yet i mean the departed is good but is that really marty's best movie like probably not Um, this, this is, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is my favorite kind of by a long shot of the rest of his movies. I think the highest I have another movie of his is probably four stars. Um, I, I will admit I have not seen a lot of his early work. I've not seen his other Spanish language movies, Kronos or Devil's Backbone. And I know mm-hmm. I should have seen Devil's Backbone. I know a lot of people consider Pan's Labyrinth like a thematic or spiritual successor to Devil's Backbone, but I, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it. I have seen Blade 2. <laughs> it's, it's better than that. I do love the uh, the the monsterification and the... Uh, the the visual imagery of the Hellboy movies, I think he he gives a very poetic touch to what's a very silly comic book. 
Um, but yeah, for for me, Pan's Labyrinth is number one, uh, no doubt here. It, it is for me too. It's uh, I've seen I've not seen uh, The Devil's Backbone, which is uh, I, by Letterbox score. It's his second uh, most uh, adored movie. Um, and Kronos would be in the top four uh, going by that metric. I've seen Mimic. Mimic's not that bad. I don't think. I don't think it's great, but it's not. It's not bad. It's. Uh, I've seen Pacific Rim. I've seen Crimson Peak, and I've seen The Shape of Water. Uh, it's nuts that Letterboxd has Pacific Rim uh, with the same rating as Crimson Peak, <laughs> uh, because uh, Pacific Rim. I, I don't think I've seen it in about six or seven years, but. I certainly remember it being better than Crimson Peak, which is uh, a, a visual feast and a bore of a story. <laughs> yeah. Where Crimson Peak is just like, or not Crimson Peak, Pacific Rim is just nonstop fun for like two hours. It's just yeah. like uh, Guillermo del Toro's comic boy dreams come to life in this, you know, kaiju story. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty interesting that, uh, that Pacific Rim rates so low. I mean, part of it is it's uh it's one of those things like I consider it cheesy on purpose. Some of the acting and some of the plot yeah. is it's trying to be that kind of movie, but maybe some people just think it's cheesy. I don't know. I I, I would have it pretty high. Pacific Rim may be in my top three of what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And then The Shape of Water, which uh, I, I feel like people dunk on it a little bit and I understand why it's because once you have the title of best picture, there's a lot to live up to there. And I don't think that movie quite does it, uh, but it is a, I thought it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. I um, think it's uh, I think I liked it when I first saw it. Then there was a backlash where I wasn't sure if I liked it. I think it's probably due for, um, for a, uh, I don't know, um, a, a rebirth as a pretty good movie pretty soon. I guess like a, Mm-hmm. Three three year window in in best Oscar purgatory. Once it's over, you know we can talk about it as a movie again. So my one last question is: there uh, of of his two movies that are uh, possibly coming out in let's say twenty twenty one twenty twenty two, which one are you looking forward to more? His stop motion animated uh, version of Pinocchio, or uh, the movie Nightmare Alley, which I believe stars Bradley Cooper as a um, a carny with magical powers. <laughs> um, for me, definitely Nightmare Alley. Give me Carney Coop, yeah. Carney Cooper all day. Um, I'm kind of, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of done with Pinocchio adaptations. I think once we had the uh, um, Roberto Benigni one that just was <laughs> that no one went for. I think we're we're done with those. And I'm sure there's probably going to be other Pinocchios after it. Um, I don't know. I like the first one. Not to have a uh, no remake stance, but I do like some remakes, but I'm not that excited for it. All right. So uh, the moment you've been waiting for yes, yes, yes. is to find out where Guillermo del Toro ranks in the database. So um, any any guesses? Uh, now you know where John McTiernan is. is he's in the like the 280s or so. So where... Uh, my, see, you can see the scores right in front of you. Del Toro has one, I would say, anything I think that has an average of four stars or more on Letterboxd tends to to be kind of, you know, masterpiece territory. Sure, he, and, he uh, does. He, he's got one. He does have ten movies here. Uh, we do have some low ones, but the, I'm going to say in the, he's probably in the 170s. Um, well, I actually had to adjust before tonight because Shape of Water has dropped down since I last updated these uh, 
the, these rankings. So he dropped about 15 spots. <laughs> uh, but he but he is uh, with that point one difference. But uh, he is uh, he's ranked number 239. Oh wow! Um, so you, you're always curious who's nearby in these. Uh, so in the 230s we have uh, Sidney Pollock. Hmm. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah. Uh, ranked 233rd, I think, which is fun, is Alejandro Gonzalez in <laughs> Oh my gosh. Who makes better movies, but fewer of mm. them. Uh, and uh, Danny Boyle, Steve McQueen, um, George Miller is kind of in the same vein. Uh, th- what you what, what I've found is that it sounds like 200, like, oh, he's ranked 239th. That's not very respectful of Guillermo del Toro. And then you just look at all the names and you're like, oh my God, there are 500 great filmmakers in history. Yeah, there's probably at least uh, a, there are a lot of really a good A couple ones. of those that might be in like my top 10. There's some, some heavy hitters there. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait till um, we get one that's like in a top 50 where I just can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, it's, you know, I think it's, I think he his he doesn't you know looking at his filmography he really hasn't made a lot of of great great movies that you know really just impact cinema and yet I think he has this huge impact on cinema and it's because of the visuals of his movies in fact I think he, he was rated almost next to Tim Burton before I updated it and it dropped him a little bit and I think that's an interesting comparison for me and and it's uh, maybe that's another that's another director that I sometimes don't quite fully love all his movies. Um, maybe because maybe because I just don't the you know reliance on visuals doesn't work as much for me as it does for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that it doesn't work, but it just doesn't impact me the same way it might uh, other viewers. And um, I think that uh, he's definitely an auteur with clear visions for his films uh, and his movies are always interesting to watch, even if I don't always find them that rewarding. Although I think, I, I think this discussion has really helped me appreciate Pan's Labyrinth even more. I'm still not sure if it's a, if it's a 4.5 or a five for me, uh, that's sort of the line I've always kind of been at. Uh, but um I do think that this is his best movie that I've seen, and it's certainly his most important. Uh, yeah, I think I think you you, uh, you you make a great point there. I think he he has an outsized influence of just how good his movies are. Of um, just look thinking back of them, I can think of what all these movies feel like. You know what I mean? Um, and what they what they look like and what they sound like, mm-hmm. um, probably more than what the actual plots are here. Um, and he may have an outsized influence as like a he definitely produces a lot of stuff that has like Guillermo del Toro presents some like interesting horror movie or some weird sci-fi thing and he's he's got a ton yeah. of things that he was going to do that never happened so maybe that's part of why I think he'd be he'd be higher in my uh in my non-ranked non-data driven way <laughs> Well, he certainly has. I mean, he is. He has almost as much value, like you said, as a cinephile and just a fan of movies. Where he, you know, he's on Twitter all the time, recommending movies to people and talking about how he just loves movies. This is a guy. He's he's very like much like Quentin Tarantino in that mm-hmm. way. And who I meant to mention earlier, uh, you said you didn't know what the cinematographer had done before. He had, I think, he shot Jackie Brown oh. for uh, Quentin Tarantino. But um, yeah, this is just a. 
Genie T is just a huge fan of movies, and it's it's really fun to just like watch him. I've watched YouTube videos before of just him talking about movies, and uh, he just it's he's it's uh, infectious the way he just loves cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see it in Pan's Labyrinth, I think. Yeah, I guess it just seems like a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, any any final thoughts on Pan's Labyrinth? No, I still uh, I still love it. Um, I'll probably watch it again in a couple of years, and uh, I I may have flipped to your side of thinking that it's all real, and I'll have a brand new theory of the whole thing. But uh, yeah, just really really love revisiting Guillermo's world he built here. All right, well, let, uh, we have to announce what's next to watch and uh, right before we wrap up. And I'm going to read you the letterboxed description of this movie, and I want to see if you can guess oh, what movie this is. Okay. When Prince Ahmad is blinded and cast out of Baghdad by the nefarious Jafar, he joins forces with the scrappy thief Abu to win back his royal palace as well as the heart of a beautiful princess. What movie does this sound like? Is that Apocalypse Now? It's uh, uh, no. We're doing Aladdin. We are not doing Aladdin. We are doing the 1940 film that Aladdin ripped off, apparently, in uh, several aspects. The Thief of Baghdad. Ah. Directed by Michael Powell and uh, Ludwig Berger and Tim Whelan. But I'm going to go with Michael Powell mostly. Michael Powell without. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real big fan of the Archer's uh, films, and this is uh, uh, early, um, I guess they'd done films earlier, but uh, this is the one that kind of sticks out is it's not very British sounding, which is a lot of their movies, so I've always been interested to, yeah. to look at it, kind of see what it was about. Yeah, it was uh, nominated for a handful of Oscars in 19... 19- I should already have had that information uh, ready, but... Um, but yeah, apparently, I, I had no idea until I was reading the description of this film today that um, <laughs> until I was reading about Jafar and Abu and <laughs> winning the heart of a princess that I was like, this sounds pretty familiar to me. Um, but uh, this was a very innovative movie and it was um, it won three Oscars at least. So and it was nominated for a fourth, it looks like so. Um, 1940s, The Thief of Baghdad. We're going old. We're going with a movie that neither one of us have ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it should be interesting. So that is streaming on both HBO Max and the Criterion channel. So pick pick your poison and uh, that will do it. So uh, uh, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth was fun. And uh, David, you can play us out. Sure. Uh, So thanks everybody for listening to this Pan's Labyrinth, Here Are the Nominees, a offshoot of the uh, Talkie Talk podcast from TheMediaBias.com. So things you can do to help us are to su- subscribe to this podcast and uh, give a review, um, five stars being the max. Uh, hint, hint, we, we like the max. Um, you can uh, email us at uh, TheMediaBias at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at TheMediaBias. We also have Facebook groups. Um we have a Facebook page, The Media By Us, and Facebook groups for uh, TV, TV By Us, mo- Games By Us, and Movies By Us um, on Facebook for those uh, different areas. And, uh, yeah, reach out to us if you want and uh, tell a friend about the podcast. 
And uh, just want to say thank you for listening. And uh, thank you, Brent, for taking us through this movie. Ah, oh, thank you, David, for uh, talking with me about it and uh, providing some expertise on a movie that where I didn't feel like I had a lot. So, uh, anyway, thanks for listening, and until next time, bye. Bye.